0: That was something we have added recently. We want them connected to their community. And they're, if, if they're connected to their community digitally because of their love, their shared love of this mission, then we are also doing our job.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Noah Barnett, and I'm the VP of Marketing here at Feather. And today in the studio, I'm joined by Courtney Bugler. I am so grateful to have her. She's been a great friend and thought partner throughout the years, and is currently the chief development and marketing officer at Piedmont Park Conservancy. Hey, Courtney, welcome to the studio.
0: Hi, welcome. Wow, you really put a lot of uh, a lot of emphasis on that "and" right there. That's that's doing a lot of heavy lifting.
1: Yeah, I wanted to make sure people leaned into the "and" because mm-hmm. typically there's the. There's a stonewall between those two words and it's more common than the and. So I wanted to make sure that it was clear that Courtney is an and person, not a siloed person. Yeah. I am Courtney, we've been friends for a long time, but for those that aren't familiar with you and the work, I'd love for you to share kind of the snapshot of the squiggle that you've gone on to get you to where you are today.
0: Sure. So I'm a, I'm a little non-traditional. Um in that I did not start nonprofits. I've been here for probably a 15 plus years, but I always like to say I, I worked on cruise ships. I um I was a scriptwriter for soap operas, so I can help you come back from the dead or you know like, fight your evil twin. Um, and I even did a little stint where I uh, sold cars to people with bad credit. But I have been working in nonprofits both locally and nationally um, in health and human services. Um, I was an executive director, you know, before this role, I was the national director for, um, Race for the Cure and More Than Pink Walk at Susan G. Komen. And here I am at Piedmont Park Conservancy, which for those of you who've never been to beautiful ATL, it is sort of Atlanta Central Park and our organization preserves, maintains, enhances, and programs the park. So people are healthier, happier, and more connected to their community.
1: Yeah. And it's a, a great colored career. And I think there's a lot from your probably non-nonprofit work that makes you the power fundraiser and marketer for nonprofits that you are. I want to ask another question because we highlighted the and in the intro. Mm-hmm. If you had to explain to someone in two minutes why it should be an and and not siloed, how, how would you do that? What's, what's your framing for why marketing and fundraising are under one leadership?
0: So... First of all, um, I would say everyone is a fundraiser and everyone is a storyteller. And everyone's job in my team is to help people create relationships. We have an internal team mission statement where we say our job is to create and form relationships with people that help them take the next step in supporting our mission. So that's, I mean, if you think about it that way, people, relationships, next step. So if you're a marketer, you'll talk about conversions. If you're a fundraiser, you'll talk about moves management to support our mission. Well, that support can also look different in different ways. But to me, whether it's a fundraising, you know, pyramid or a marketing funnel, you are trying to get lots of people to take a next step where they become more and more part of a more exclusive group that is more involved in your organization. So uh, to me, it is a no-brainer that they're, you know, a constituent journey and a donor journey involves both teams. They are part of that journey completely, both of them, the whole way in just various types. Yeah,
1: I love that. And I think one thing we talk a lot on this podcast and in the Good Marketing Framework is that you have a community of people that you are cultivating connections with to activate impact. Correct. And you're learning throughout the way. And fundraising and marketing are capabilities that you can use throughout that process at different times. But why silo the capabilities when you're serving one community? So I always love your advocacy around that. So I appreciate you giving that snapshot. So a lot of what you're you're talking about as it relates to this type of leadership and like change leadership requires deep trust building with your team. You know, the team has to actually trust that that's true, that we're not just changing things to change things. and, And, you know, maybe they've experienced that at other places, how do you as a leader, especially in a nonprofit where there's always a lot more work than you have the resources and bandwidth to do, what intentionality or in, uh, maybe tips that you've deployed to build trust within your team?
0: I'll give an example. When I worked at um, Susan G. Komen, I was tasked to transform you know, one of the oldest peer-to-peer properties, Race for the Cure, into a more fundraising mindset. So it was a brand shift. But one of the things we realized as I was hired is I, I realized when I walked in that in some ways we were trying to do it the way Komen had always done it, which was through just branding and marketing. So we were gonna mm. if we just change the name and change the this, the culture would change. And yeah. the challenge was is that the organization was not built for the fundraising. And so One of the things that we were trying to do is, you know, people over time, and my God, this was even before COVID, right? So like in person, peer-to-peer fundraising, participation was going down every year. But what was happening as opposed to some of our peers is because we were based on reg fees and not the fundraising, the revenue was disproportionately falling compared to our peers. And so we knew that we had to do things differently. And that was an organization that was that's very challenged. Um, it is now 1501C3, but in 2018, when I was there, it was a federated model. So you had all these affiliates in the, in the country who didn't technically have to do anything. And the excuse had always been, well, they you can't make them do anything. And so therefore we can't really change things. And so one of the first things that we realized is that people, they knew what was, what they were doing wasn't working, but they weren't quite sure how to fix it. And they just, they wanted to know that somebody was in the foxhole with them. So to me, that was the, that's the biggest place of how we created trust. And we did it a few ways. One is super transparent. I always said, there's no uh, accountability without visibility. So that that could be, you know, KPIs, that could be whatever. As an organization, they had never shared each other's results with other affiliates. So I was like, we're going to share it all. And we're going to send you things. And we know that you need them. And they may not be perfect yet. So we're going to put draft on the bottom. And you can use it because you might need it right now. And in two months, we're going to send you a revised version because we just want to show you that we are putting in the effort we started presenting to those affiliates on a weekly basis Uh, we wanted to be teach them to be sort of students of the industry and i remember a staff person saying oh my god you want to do we used to do a webinar every quarter and i was like nope we're going to do a webinar every week and we are going to have topics and we are going to do some things and not everybody will participate, but other people will. And one of the things that we wanted them to do was to get to know us as people. So if you were to ask, you know, the Komen affiliates, some of my favorite words, they would know them, by the way, number one is shenanigans. They would be able to tell you like, what, what is, what are Courtney-isms because they got to know me as a person. They got to see the investment we were making in them. And... They got to see us as industry leaders. So we also were showcasing the fact that we knew what we were doing, at least sort of, right? So for any team, if you're trying to build trust, got to be in front of them as much as possible. They got to see you next to them. They got to see that you mean it. You got to show the effort of, you know, I always said like, what are two or three things that's getting in your way? And you got to find a way to solve those, at least one or two of those two or three. Mm -hmm. You know, that team told me, we don't get enough stuff. We need more resources and materials. And it never comes fast enough. I said, okay, we're going to start churning out stuff. We hired somebody to do it. And I said to the marketing department, four months to create this isn't enough. If you guys aren't going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves. And it won't be perfect, but it's going to be good enough. Mm. Because... How can we find the quick wins? And I think that as a leader, the number one thing that you can do is when we are successful, I will stand behind you and, you know, like let people celebrate your success. When we are not, and there will be times where we won't be. I will stand in front of you and shield you from the pitchforks. And not to say that I was perfect at it all the time, but that sort of idea of like, I am in it too. And and your screw up is our screw up. And in fact, it's my screw up. Or if something, you know, we try something and it doesn't work. Like that's on me. That's not on you. Yeah. But if something is awesome, it's all you.
1: You said uh, something going from quarterly to weekly, which I think would throw a lot of people for a loop. But the takeaway I had there to summarize it was the quarterly method allowed you to optimize for quality. The weekly method allowed you to show off the people. So you depended on the people versus the performance. Because if you're planning something and increasing this and doing that, now it's like you're putting on a performance. Versus like the weekly environment's not fit for that. You're just showing up every day as people and then being able to be responsive. And you're closing the loop faster. Mm -hmm. Let's say you come in one week and team says something or you missed the mark or what you said didn't resonate you're coming back seven days later to do it again versus 90 days later yeah and i think this is applicable not just with your team but even with your supporter community (laughs) and your donors and your and your supporters and and showing up more often i think is is a it's commonly misunderstood that we have to just do more but it's no you're just able to show off more of your humanity and your care for the cause Get feedback more often, and then close the loop faster. So you're creating in, uh, tighter circles, basically loops, to be able to continue to cultivate that. So yeah. yeah, it's really smart.
0: And that goes back to anytime you're when you're fundraising, you're doing things. You know, I always say as it relates to you know event fundraising and things. You know, why do people participate? Because they care about the cause, and they they want to be a part of community. So how do you create community? How do you cr- create community in your team? How do you create community in your organization? Staff, board, volunteers, and that's sort of more than just team building. And then, how do you connect your donors with each other to make them a part of a community? And then you feel with however you're communicating with them that they see you naturally as the as the person they want to you know they'll fo- they'll follow you anywhere, right? Um, because their affinity has become so strong. Yeah, and. You know, you don't have to do that, especially after COVID. People have become a lot less formal, so you know you don't have to have big fancy uh, mail pieces or this or that. You know, they just want people to talk to them and they want to connect with each other. And when you're fundraising, if you find a way to create an affinity group, whether it's digitally or in person, because there's you can do it both ways people are less likely to leave when they feel like they're part of a bigger something and they know people in that circle versus if they're just faceless donor number three on the left.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the couple things that came to the top of mind that's relevant for other conversations we've had even on this uh, Good Marketing Unplugged podcast is if you're going to build community, you actually have to spend time with your community to understand them. Yes. It, it, you can't create community in a boardroom <laughs> or in, in a silo or in a spreadsheet. Like you have to actually spend time colliding and getting in the mud and doing all of that.
0: And and people need to think you're authentic. You know, one of the greatest things that came from COVID is we now do more, you know, like people see their dogs and they saw babies and they saw kids and they, they saw what you put up on your walls in your own home office. You know, like people were seen as people more and that hasn't gone away and so they just want to know that you that you're real. And I think when we're when we're communicating digitally, you know, we share more stories obviously about our volunteers and our mission, but we share more about our staff on our digital platforms than we used to. I know that that sort of flies in the face of uh, that concept of being sort of donor centric, but I'm not talking about necessarily in fundraising appeals, but I'm talking about like People love it when we show, you know, the staff doing their thing. They love seeing. Um, we had a staff outing where we did axe throwing as a staff. I work at a park. We actually brought a trailer into the park and we did it. And we shared that photo, you know, on LinkedIn or on on Instagram, and people loved seeing the, you know, the nameless, faceless people like as people. When we do some of our fundraising appeals now we're doing a lot of them as as sort of notes from the person who runs our landscaping um, or the person who runs our volunteer program because people want to know that there are people mm-hmm. behind it.
1: Yeah, I've been growing and understanding more about community and the two other attributes of community building that have come to mind even in Surface and as you're sharing is this idea of to build community, you have to, foster collaboration Mm -hmm. and collaboration means like participatory versus like directional or like kind of one way. It has to be this like responsive kind of conversation amongst the community, which also means there's expectations on the parties to come to the table and collaborate. Like collaboration isn't consumption, it's Mm -hmm. collaboration. And I think the more I think about the challenges of nonprofits The more I think we should decouple ourselves from thinking and learning from commerce models, like e commerce and other businesses, and think what can we learn from collaboration models? Like, think about like Slack or Asana or these project management Mm -hmm. platforms of how you internally drive a workforce. It's like, I think watching that has taught me more about community and fundraising than looking at like e commerce best practices or how this company scaled this, that, and the other, because you have to drive participation through collaborative understanding, understanding of the community. But then the second word that came to mind was accountability. Is that when you're in a community and you feel like you belong, you are kind of on the hook to that. You know, It's like if you're in a friend group and you all get together once a year and step away from your busy lives, you kind of have to show up. Or if you go out on Thursday nights and watch the game and you don't feel like it, maybe one week that's fine. But it's like you got to keep participating and showing up. And I think fostering collaboration to drive community ultimately... It instills accountability, which I think increases retention. So it's like, it's this interesting circle where community requires accountability, which is what we want in retention efforts.
0: Yeah. And that accountability shouldn't be driven by the organization. It should be mm-hmm. driven by the members of the community.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And reinforced.
0: Yeah. By and social, reinforced. social
1: peers and social pressure.
0: Yeah. Hey yeah. dude, why didn't you show up for for beers last Friday. Like, yeah. really? Really? Why didn't you do it? And there's an old sort of fundraising, you know, mantra of, you know, if you ask for money, you're going to get advice. If you ask for advice, the money will follow. And so, you know, because what you're doing is you're creating, you're creating an environment where they're, where they know that they're a stakeholder. But with that, the idea of, I mean, that's why in organizations, there's, you know, major donor groups and women's groups and things like that. It's so that community can say, you know, Hey, Sally, I didn't, I didn't see your name on the list. Why aren't you doing this anymore? Oh, I'm really busy or whatever. Oh, come on. It would be really great if you were still there. And so, you know, I think one of the the nuts that we haven't exactly cracked from a, like a direct response and a marketing perspective is how do you create that environment digitally on a mass scale? You know, it's, it's not as something as simple as, you know, creating a, an online group. Um, sometimes those work, eh, sometimes they don't. And especially as you're getting younger, you know, nobody, nobody under like 40s in a Facebook group anyway. So, but how do you create those opportunities for back and forth feedback? And knowing who those other people are, one of the things that we're really trying to to figure out um, and we're relatively small here, but I will say having worked at a very large nonprofit too, uh, they hadn't figured it out either, is, you know, how do you use people's social networks? And now that there are platforms where you can identify them and and see that to, to help provide the fabric to weave some of those people together online. So they realize, oh, you know, this person that I follow, they give here too, or, you know, oh, I didn't realize that these 17 people on my block are also donors and things like that. And so how do you, how do you sort of wave that flag, of course, protecting everybody's donor information, but wave that flag so that they can identify those people with each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure anybody's really cracked that fully, But to me, that's sort of the next, the next stage of building community because I manage, you know, marketing and development, you know, I manage either the entire funnel or the entire pyramid, depending on who you talk to. Right. And I always believe that you should, how do we apply technology and direct response more to major donors? So how do we automate things? How do we create, not just automate our communications and things, but how do we automate our tasks how do we automate some of those things to make it just easier to manage but then also how do we how do we bring the people to your digital and direct response how do you how do you find opportunities for it to feel like it's not organization to person but it's person to person mm,
1: that's a great transition to what we like to do here on unplugged which is talk about like real campaigns both the successes and the failures so thinking back maybe over the last 12 months or even in your previous roles, what was something that you tried that underperformed expectations? And what did you learn through that that you still carry forward into what you're doing today? So when did something, you implement something that you all were excited about and it you know, fell flat on the floor, but walked away with learnings that you apply now to future campaigns?
0: I would say a lot of our paid social underperformed.
1: And what were you doing through Paid Social, just so we can contextualize? Like, was it acquisition? Was it cultivation?
0: Yeah, we do about five, you know, official digital campaigns a year. And we're not too crazy. You know, we do a typical, you know, there's a year-end one that, of course, starts at, you know, pre-giving Tuesday, some things like that. You know, we do a summer match, you know, Mother's Day, those kinds of things. And in my past jobs, and I would say probably 2020 and 2021, when we would apply, you know, paid Facebook, Instagram, things like that on top of those, those were usually worth doing. I really think it's a lot of it's multi-channel. So sometimes I was like, it was also the reminder, right? It was the I got the email. And then two days later I also see it in my feed and that reminds me. So sometimes it's harder to track and there's all these, you know, issues with with meta and and tracking now too. But what we saw, and I don't know if it's if it's sort of post-COVID fatigue as an organization, we now that we kind of were coming out of that, I think we, we have to tackle with a little bit of our own urgency issues, you know, like why give now? But on the whole, some of that paid social underperformed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, we've got some data that just shows on the whole, a lot of other ones weren't performing quite as well. And I think that because of COVID and, and so many other fundraising things went digital. So it's like, no, we're not going to spend money on our fundraising events. Instead, we're going to shovel all that money into paid.
1: Yeah, the competition's crazy. Yeah, yeah. the
0: competition <laughs> is crazy. The ROI was not worth it. And for acquisition, it was just there. So we learned a couple of things. One is we actually learned that we're spending a lot more sort of at the very top of the funnel now. With almost no expectation of conversion to a donation anytime soon.
1: So, more brand awareness reminders, but not direct, not acquisition, direct response type.
0: Yeah. Um, I would call it more audience warming. Uh, maybe it's because I used to work in Pink Ribbons. And so, the idea of awareness makes me sort of want to throw up because, in some ways, it wasn't really about brand awareness. They're pretty aware of our brand here, it was warming them to the idea. It was starting to warm them to other actions. And also sort of, you know, especially with, with younger demographics, I would like to, social is a place where I, would, where I would call it the you go girl kind of mentality. So I shared, you know, like I, I put my heart next to it. I gave it a thumbs up. Maybe I might have even like tagged somebody that I liked, but it was very much like, yeah, that's awesome. You go girl. And we had sort of trained people that that was enough. So that would be my, my just general sense when on the marketing side, when we just judge everything by like engagements, we're actually not, we've trained them to engage, but not convert. So we have, you know, years...
1: How I like to describe it, and we have this in the good marketing framework is that you have to cultivate connection, but then you have to activate conversion. And if we stop and we measure success, at the connection, like we connected with a bunch, which another one could be engagement. But that's a that's necessity. But you have to get to you have to activate and be that catalyst yeah. to drive right. something, even if it's watch a video, come to the park, etc.
0: The evolution of of digital marketing, right? So like first it was just impressions because we couldn't actually track individuals, right? So it was impressions and then and then it's engagements, but like, okay, great. So they have, they have put their puffy heart on your great picture like 17 times, but if they never do anything else, it doesn't matter. And so um, that's a hard lesson, by the way, to when I have flat out told people that the things that they have been working on don't matter if we can't get them to, that, to the next one. So we've spent more money on what I would call warming, which is starting to train them for action that is not in the platform. And you, and you do that by warming them to, you know, tag somebody, um, hey, you know, watch this. We also are much more active in our own comments than we used to be. We actually tag and call people out in the comments to sort of like try and get them into it. So we're spending a lot more time there because what we saw is when we spent time there, you know, it might take a year, but it'll be better. And and when they do finally convert, they're they're all in. They're not just, oh, maybe. What we have seen, for better or worse, with our organization, is that the magic happens when they get on the email list. So we are doing everything on social to get them on the email list. I could probably argue that within two years, the email will be dead, which is also why we're trying to get them on the text list too, but The idea of, you know, meeting them where they are in social, you know, so we can create donations, you know, you can, you can donate through Facebook. You can do all of that. In my experience, that peaked about three years ago and they, people are just real comfortable in social, living in social, just doing their thing. And so we have sort of redoubled our efforts to prepare them to somehow leave that social platform. That's hard though. Because I had to flat out look to my, uh, you know, when we were building our budget, and they were like, well, what's the ROI of this? And I'm like, you're not gonna see it. You guys will not see it. We will see how it is moving the needle. You won't see it in the dollars yet. And uh, that is hard. That is a hard thing to do.
1: But sometimes essential. I think if we, it's, if it's we over-index on direct attribution at everything, we, we, we lose sight of the market part of marketing and the community building part of fundraising and not to just justify, you know, overspending on things that don't matter, but there's a part of marketing that is part of the mission. <laughs> like yes. and I think it's just like you don't go to your program staff and say like, "Hey, that extra, you know, clipboard you're buying, like what what's the ROI on our programs there?" Like so there's a part of marketing and communications that I think in the same way we invest in our programs Marketing is not always just a means to doing our programs, but it's part of the mission. It is, as we say, marketing is good with a capital G because our communication is is essential.
0: That's exactly what I've told people. I was, I was like, you know, when when we do an audited financial statement at the end of the year, a lot of this will be mission based spending because it's education, it's communication, it's you know, here at the Conservancy. We maintain, enhance, preserve, and program at the park so people are healthier, happier, and more connected to their community. That was something we have added recently. We want them connected to their community. And they're, if if they're connected to their community digitally because of their love, their shared love of this mission, then we are also doing our job.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there needs to be more conversations about what you just said, where part of the budget might be program expenses. And I think for a long time, it's like we are under-resourced and understaffed because we have to maintain some sort of level of admin and fundraising percentages and this, that, and the other. And it's like, okay, so we're just then going to do nothing. We're not going to communicate to our audience and not accomplish our mission. When if we see part of marketing or part of our jobs as communicators, that it is education, it is part of the mission... We might rethink that prioritization and resourcing strategy for those efforts.
0: And I mean, every nonprofit I've ever worked at on the marketing side, they may not be thinking of it, but at the finance side, when they're doing their audited financials, they're they're counting at least half of what everybody in the marketing team is doing to mission.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: Because that's what we'll do. Hey friends, Emily here from
1: Feather. Feather's nonprofit marketing platform turns your if only wish list into reality. Feather Flights, our marketing automation tool, helps you design multi-channel campaigns and automated engagement journeys. Feather is trusted by over 1300 nonprofits and we help you unlock more time, more results, and ultimately, more confidence with real-time ROI reporting at the campaign level so you know what works, removing the guesswork from your 2023 plan. Book time with one of our digital strategists today and learn how you can unlock more in 2023 with Feather by visiting feather.co. That's feather without the last E.co. We've talked about a lot of different things. I'm curious where you and your team are investing more in 2023. Like what, what are you all either doubling down on? So maybe it's going back to something else and saying, hey, we're going to put more resources in this or experimenting with new channels or programs or campaigns. What's on the docket for you all? And I would love to know why.
0: Yeah, so we are investing, I would say um, in a couple of things, we're investing in staff. What we have been doing is unsustainable. And I think most nonprofits have been doing the same thing. And we have done a tremendous amount with not a lot, you know, we're one of those nonprofits that's slightly unusual in the fact that our philanthropy grew in the last few years, but we've been doing it with the same number of people. And so we've invested in staff. Uh, this is also my plug for as nonprofit leaders, we invested in higher raises for our staff. So if anybody listens to this and they're like, "I need you to talk to my boss," I will. Uh, I will preach that until until next year. Your people are what make it happen they've been working really hard they are exhausted um, and everything costs 10% more and if you are not investing in those people you won't be able to be sustainable and your people won't stay
1: i love how i asked you what you were investing into in marketing and you led with people yeah because i think that's that's a that's a brilliant answer and a required answer to do good marketing
0: you need is people. To in your
1: people that yeah. is an investment in marketing. On um, yeah, that's incredible.
0: But that also reflects the fact that I believe that marketing and fundraising are the same thing. They are relationship building and storytelling, and so they just do it in different ways. After the people were investing in technology, we are, um, you know. So I'm a 360 degree marketing development shop. So um, I also manage volunteers.
1: Why not? Right? Why not? And, you
0: know, <laughs> yeah. and government relations too, by the way. So, you know, we're we're not doing anything here, but we are investing in ways to ensure that we have platforms that are talking to each other. You know, so we're, we're investing in our volunteer platform and making sure that it talks to our CRM in a way that it hasn't before. We are investing in Plan giving software because we're launching plan giving. We are investing in automation because, again, you need people, but all the people in the world isn't going to help if, if all your stuff is so manual that it takes too much time and effort. You know, if you are still like every time you send out an email, like building a query and, you know, manually doing all of that, like that is time and energy. So we are, we are investing in the tools that our people need to do their jobs faster. I'll, I'll also, you know, down to the nitty gritty, like my team is getting new computers. My team is getting new printers because we've been giving them tools that have not been great for what they've been doing lately. So software and hardware, actually. And then I would say, because of what we learned last year, we are investing more in, you know, in warming. If you want to get really tactical, we're investing in. I, I almost am scared to say it. We are investing in Microsoft Bing (laughs) and not just doing Google ads, but that's that follows the data that we've learned. So and we're investing in platforms to help us prospect. So on all things, we invested in a sponsorship platform. You know, We have uh, wealth screening and social listening uh, embedded in our CRM, donor analytics, things like that. So I will be honest, there's a part of me that's a little bit afraid that by the end of this year, we'll have all these great tools and we won't be using any of them to their fullest potential. But I'm willing to take that risk because what we wanted to do was make people work smarter, not harder. Because, man, people have been working real hard the last few years.
1: Yeah, and at some point more effort and more hustle and more work doesn't produce results. It just is diminishing returns. Yeah.
0: And and if we can go back to that like first, you know, that sort of the way back machine of how do you show change and and, and drive change by building trust? Some of it is like show me the money. Show the investment in your people that you care about Their performance enough that you are going to invest in them and what makes their job easier. We're also investing in professional development. So understandably, for a couple of years, nobody probably could. But if you're, if you're an organization that sees the light at the end of the tunnel, you can build trust in the next phase by, you know, like when I walked into my office and said, by the way, like Santa Claus has come to town and five out of seven of you are getting new computers. Like I, I know that that L button has like practically worn off your laptop. Like it's time. You would have thought that that I had delivered pots of gold, right? Give people the tools that they need to be successful. So I that you know some of these things are like they're not sexy answers. Like I, uh, and certainly Microsoft Bing isn't sexy, by the way. Um, and sure, there's <laughs> it's like get, my, it's
1: getting there though. Yeah, I mean,
0: But there's um, you know, yeah. I mean, we could talk about some. I don't know. That's just like. I just think that it is time to make people's lives easier in their jobs. We had an excuse of why we didn't for a couple of years, and there is no more excuse and um happier well resourced people do better work, and they're Absolutely. willing to work harder for you. so Absolutely. that is my non you know people people and and resources to make their jobs easier,
1: yeah. I think that's a brilliant answer because it all starts there. You can have all the tactics in the world and the strategies, but if you don't have the people and then the people are equipped and empowered to do what they need to do, you you can't. You can't do much else. That's a a great transition to a few lightning round questions if you're up for it, Courtney. Sure. Uh, So the first question we like to ask is what's a marketing axiom or leadership axiom that you go back to? Something you tell your team often, something you tell yourself often as you're doing good marketing.
0: A very smart fundraiser once told me when you're talking to a donor, they, they're they thinking, show me, you know me. So everything we do, how do we show the donor, the constituent that we know them?
1: Show me, you know me. That's great. Love that. Second question in the lightning round is what's a book on or related to marketing or fundraising that you wish you read earlier in your career?
0: Mm, I think it started as a book. But I, I'm going to cheat and say there's um, there's a documentary. It's called Pick Up the Litter. And it's all about volunteer guide dogs. And I watched it on a plane once. And like halfway through, I'm like sobbing on the plane because they're these uh, super adorable puppies. And not all of them get to be guide dogs, right? And it was very interesting because it was a part of the culture of the organization that they never say that the dogs fail. in They don't fail being a guide dog. They are career changed and they are very specific that they are career changed to being a dog that will breed other dogs or to being a pet. And to me, the concept of, of something or someone failing at something is it changed my entire perspective. It changed my perspective on how when I'm working with staff that's underperforming is, you know, is it that they're failing? Is it because they don't work here or is it that they need to be career changed? within my team or the organization, I use it all the time when we talk about volunteers, because there are a lot of volunteers that need a really solid career change. So how do we provide them an avenue to be the most successful? And so I think that that just goes back and, and just everything we do like I don't that goes back to why I don't think that there's no such thing as like really bad failure. I don't even think about it as a failure. It's like, this isn't working. How do we career change the person, the item, the thing? And I got that all from the documentary about the guide dog puppies. It's amazing. You should watch it.
1: So it's called Pick of the Litter. It sounds like a litter.
0: It's amazing. That's
1: awesome. Where do you go for inspiration? What other nonprofits do you like following... Maybe it's not even a nonprofit. maybe it's someone else that you feel like is doing or representing good marketing that you are inspired and learning from.
0: You know, I am really learning and watching the way that without naming specific brands. The one thing about social media is that people are going to expect, like if they make comments and they talk crap about you, like they they sort of want you to respond, right? Um, And that is a very two-way form of communication and so one of the things that i actually follow on the regular partly because part of what i manage is also crisis communications is how do brands respond when they screw up i like to pay attention to that and some of them i have watched a couple of brands completely change strategy because the public has been so vocal and What they've done is they've been like, you know what? Like, we took this back. You're right. We don't want to lose you. And clearly, we screwed this one up. And so I will say that, and maybe that's just because secretly, I like to watch the drama of Brands in Trouble. I don't know. But I think about that from the perspective of, I mean, I'll age myself, right? But when I worked at Susan G. Komen, there was a very large PR challenge many years ago. Um, lived strong when Lance Armstrong was found. You know, like, so from nonprofit perspectives, that's happened. And those organizations, this was pre-huge social media, but their answer was to sort of lock it down. And that goes back into the no accountability with visibility. So I love it when brands screw up. And instead of deleting the tweet or doing this, they just sort of like open the doors and let all the haters in. And I like to watch how that happens. And, and again, I guess maybe that goes back to like my sort of leadership style of like, if we screw up, I'm going to stand in front of the pitchforks and just let it happen. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's inspirational or if I'm just like, I just love the drama, but I like to watch how people handle that because I think it teaches us a lot about what it what it means when things actually get challenging
1: publicly. Absolutely. And I think we can all relate to that in various Weights or volume, even just now, you know, we've gone through a few years that were really tough. But I think the challenges we have in 2023 and beyond are even more interesting, like pressure on team pressures on budgets, pressures on the economy. And yeah, leaders under pressure, decide whether (laughs) you're a good leader or not, uh, you know, yeah. We're in, uh, it's like the peacetime versus wartime leadership. And we're a little bit in wartime. And I think it's good for us to remember that even in small ways within our organizations, within Mm -hmm. the cause areas we're working, et cetera. So that's a great answer. Well, Courtney, it's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Always Always a pleasure. And glad to have you on the the Unplugged podcast.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, You know, don't be a stranger. And like I said, if anybody ever wants to uh, get some ammunition to argue for why you should invest in your staff, I am always available. It is a hot topic for me.
1: Good Marketing Unplugged would like to give a special thanks to our producer, The Good Podcast Company, and to Feather's very own Max Anderson, who wrote and performed our theme song.